Thank you so much. And uh, thanks again for having me here today and for the privilege of digging into this extraordinary passage of Scripture. Every now and then you come across a passage of Scripture that you think, that's probably better just left read and uh, don't let a preacher muck it up. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but maybe it's a safe bet when there's a visiting preacher. You know, if he's a bit dodgy, at least you can just read the Bible passage. There you go. Um, the, uh, the, an outline for the message is there on the sheet as well. Um, I want to start with this question. Uh, it's the question that I asked Chris to ask me in the interview. Why are you still a Christian? Why are you still a Christian? I think this is a critical question for followers of Jesus to have an answer to. Because it's not enough if there is just an initial attractiveness to Jesus. Just as important, or perhaps even more so, is the question, is there like long-term viability in following Jesus? Uh, in my world of uh, the study of youth ministry, there are two uh, quite important statistics that in one sense frame a whole lot of what uh, we do and think about in ministry to teenagers. And the first is the statistic that uh, 80% of Christians in Australia first made a commitment to Jesus before they turned 20. Okay? Uh, I don't know whether it's too intrusive uh, to ask for a show of hands, but uh, can I have an indication? Uh, did you come to know the Lord before you turned 20 or are you in fact under 20? Um, some hands? Well, there you go. Not quite 80%, but uh, it, it bears out. Uh, it seems that the teenage years and the ch uh, childhood years are particularly influential in shaping somebody's uh, commitment to Jesus, uh, transforming their life and their trajectory. It's one of the reasons why I get so excited about ministering with teenagers, because you're often dealing with people who are making these uh, life-changing decisions, decisions that, uh, that will affect the whole course of their future. There's an enormous opportunity in children's and youth ministry to make an impact in a young person's life and to make an impact in the future life of the church. You know, if only there was a college nearby where you could study children's and youth ministry. Let's leave that to one side before this sermon becomes an advertorial. The second statistic, which is uh, perhaps less encouraging, that is this that of Australian young people who attended church regularly when they were 11 years old, 72% of them will no longer attend regularly by the time they turn 20. And I wonder whether that bears out in your experience as well. It certainly does in mine. When I think about my time in youth group as a teenager, I, I can picture so many faces of people who no longer follow the Lord Jesus. When I think of youth groups that I have uh, ministered to, that I've led, I can think of so many faces of people who are no longer following Jesus. In short, it seems that the statistics are showing us that children's and youth ministry is like the big front door of the church at the same time as being quite a large back door of the church. And in light of that, it's not surprising, perhaps, when people suggest that Christianity is a childish phase that people eventually grow out of. It reminds me of the line, uh, anyone who is not a socialist at age 20 has no heart, and anyone who is still a socialist at age 40 has no head. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to pass comment on the political sentiment, uh, but 
there are a lot of people today who would say at least the last part about being a Christian. That Christianity is the sort of thing that can convince you when you're a teenager. But if you have any brains, you will grow out of it eventually. So, can I ask you, why are you still a Christian? And of course, I'm talking to those who who are committed Christians uh, here tonight. I want to ask, do you have a good answer to that question? Do you have an answer that would help persuade someone to follow Jesus, to keep on following Jesus the way that you follow Jesus? I think it's a critical question for us to have at our ready. Or perhaps you here are someone who is waiting to hear a good answer to that question from others. Maybe you're one of the 72% and you're here, you've been here since you were 11 but you're wondering whether this is worth sticking at. Or perhaps you're not about to drop out, such a social cost of actually fully dropping out of church. I don't think I'd have very many friends left if I decided not to be a Christian anymore. (laughs) So maybe you're not going to drop out but perhaps you're not about to step up either without a good reason to do so. Or maybe you're here tonight and you are still trying to check out this Jesus thing and try to work out whether it's worth joining him in the first place. And you know that it's not enough for there just to be an initial attractiveness about Jesus. The critical question is whether there is a long-term viability if you're going to give your whole life to him. Now, I ask this question because this issue is at least in part what's going on here in the church in Colossae uh, that uh, we read about in, uh, in that Bible reading. Um, I, uh, I heard a bit of the sermon last week that was sort of introducing uh, this letter of the Colossians. Uh, here we have a relatively young community of Christians. They were converted around the early sort of 50s. Um, uh, that's not the 1950s, just the 50s, the original 50s. Uh, it's now about uh, uh, the early 60s and Paul is writing to them. They've been Christians for five or so years, which is not a long time, but it is long enough for alternatives to have arisen in their minds and in their community. There are options now on the table. And in that sort of context, one of the things that Paul wants to say to them is to remain in the faith. Paul is telling the Colossians, don't get distracted. Don't forget what you first heard. Don't give up what you first started. See uh, there in verse 23, Paul says to the Colossians, continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope that was held out to you in the gospel that you heard. Continue in your faith. See, this this invitation to continue to remain, it's the same word that Jesus uses when he speaks about abiding in him. That image of he uses of a vine that, that remains attached to the plant. Remain in your faith, abide, continue. This means much more than just keep on ticking the Christian box on the census. It means, it means to dig in. It means to press on. It means to make this count, especially as you face 
alternatives. Don't turn back from following Jesus is the instruction that Paul gives to the Colossians. Don't give up on the hope of the gospel that you first heard about. Stick at it. Keep drawing up this life and hope that comes from your faith in Christ. Now we have uh, this sort of rule in our household that's never really been actually implemented now I come to think of it. <laughs> and that's when dad ever uses one of the children in a, as a sermon illustration, they, they should get some sort of compensation uh, for that. So I'm going to owe my son uh, some money here, although, uh, strangely enough, here is a story that puts him in a great light, so perhaps he owes me. Um, <laughs> as I said in the interview, we moved to Melbourne back in 2016, and of course, one of the first things we had to do was to find a team to follow, Yeah. Um, now, I had the privilege of, uh, when I went to high school, uh, a kid from Melbourne moved to our high school and he bought the VFL with him. And so among our little group of friends, we all had to set about choosing a team. So I, I already had chosen a team. Of course, it was the early 1980s. And so I'm a Carlton fan. Which, of course, you know, we turn up in Melbourne in 2016. My son has to choose a team. I make it very clear to him there is one team that he can choose if he wants to continue being in good relationship with his father. <laughs> but tell you what, it's a difficult thing to put on a 13-year-old that, uh, that you need to be a Carlton fan, the team that never lets you down. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Um, one of the greatest moments of my life was Father's Day 2016. My son bought me not one Carlton scarf, but two. One for me and one for him. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> and you know what? He has continued in the faith despite many alternatives, despite real hardship. He's continued more than just reluctantly holding on. He's managed to somehow capture that sort of cult and spirit that as long as we turn up, there's still a chance. <laughs> He even went to the round 18 game uh, against uh, Hawthorne. There was no way that we were going to win. He, he put a bet on with his mate that we would win. I was so proud of him. And, but I also warned him against it. You know, A, gambling's not good, and also betting on Carlton, not a wise thing to do. <laughs> but I tell you what, Paul is, is in one sense saying to the Colossians, and, and God is in one sense saying to us, be like my son, but be like this in relation to Jesus. Yeah, following Jesus is not easy. Following Jesus is, has a number of alternatives to consider. But his invitation is to remain. Will you remain in the faith? Will you remain, not just in a passive, just hanging around sense, but will you remain established and firm? Will you remain ever hopeful for all that Jesus has promised us in this good news. That's Paul's intention in this passage. And he gives us two very good reasons. So hang on. Two very good reasons to continue in the faith. And they are, uh, point two and three, because Jesus wins and because we share in his victory. Jesus wins at this point, I need to confess that I'm not very good at sermon titles. 
It's, one, it's, it's a gift that passed me by. I'm, I'm the sort of person that when asked, you know, what's the title for your sermon on Colossians 1, 15 to 23? And I think, well, what about Colossians 1, 15 to 23? Um, that would be a decent title. I tried to be more creative, but all I came up with was Jesus wins. And I've got to confess, I think it's lame. <laughs> I think it's lame because it sounds so trite. Jesus wins makes him sound like he came first in a running race in primary school. Well, the Christians decided that we would worship Jesus because he was the most popular kid in the class. But this is what we've got. So if we're going to go with Jesus wins, let's at least fill that slogan with a bigger vision. And the bigger vision is here in verse 17. Read with me. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And here in these verses, Paul gives us a comprehensive vision of Jesus. In these verses, verses 15 to 20, the word all is repeated eight times, always in relation to Jesus. Verse 15, he is firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, in him all things were created. Again, all things have been been created by him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things. In him, all things hold together. Verse 19, God was pleased for all his fullness to dwell in Jesus. Verse 20, through Jesus, God reconciled to himself all things. That's seven. (laughs) The final one is in verse 18, when our translation says, in everything, which literally is in all things, he might have the supremacy. It is a comprehensive vision, and it's a vision that has Jesus at the very center of the action. Verses 15 and 18, he is the firstborn. Verse 16, he is the one who created everything in the first place. Verse 17, he existed before everything else did. Verse 18, he is the head of the church. He is the beginning of those who were raised from the dead. Verse 18, he has the supremacy. Do you see what we're being offered here? This big vision. Jesus, who is first in everything, in all things. In short, Jesus wins. And to be more specific, Paul shows the Colossians and us that Jesus wins in in two realms. In creation, verses 15 to 16, We're told Jesus is God himself. God who created everything. God who owns everything. God who is invisible is made visible in the human person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Picking up that language of Genesis 2, that Adam is the image of God. Jesus is the image all that humanity was always meant to be. As God the Son created everything, He made it. He owns it. That's what what it means when it says that He is the firstborn over the creation. It's coming out of a culture where it's the firstborn Son who would inherit everything. My son likes to believe he still lives in that sort of world. His older sisters remind him that the world has moved on since then. But here in Colossians... The message is of Jesus being supreme over everything that exists. Jesus wins in creation and he wins in new creation. Verses 18 to 20. It's in and through 
Jesus that God wins back all that he has made. You know the story. The Bible tells us that the good order that God intended for this creation has been thrown out of whack. And the problem is not out there. It's in here. That we have broken relationship with God. That we don't think what God made us to think. We don't do what God made us to do. Verse 21, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But God does the work of restoring it. And it's through Jesus that he does it. Verse 20, through him, that is through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. It's such a beautiful word, isn't it? Reconcile. Because reconciliation speaks of friendship restored, relationship restored. It's a word that is wonderful, that's made more wonderful still because it's not just the thing itself, but it's winning back something that was once lost. Reconciliation assumes that at one point there was a friendship that was lost. And this is the work of new creation. Just like God's work of creation, it's all about Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross makes peace with God. Jesus' resurrection from the dead puts Jesus first in the church. He is the firstborn over creation and he is the firstborn over the new creation. It's all about Jesus. There is so much to unpack here in detail, but you get the point. Jesus is supreme in all things. Jesus wins. But here's the extraordinary news, that we get to share in his victory. Do you see that in verses 21 to 22? It's like one of those extreme makeover pictures. Verse 21, once you are alienated, you are enemies, you had evil behavior. Verse 22, but now, holy, without blemish, free from accusation, and how is all this possible? Only through Jesus' own victory. Through Jesus' victory, one on the cross then we are restored, we are reconciled. Verse 22, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Jesus wins and we share in his victory. I tell you, it is like the ultimate group project, is it not? And now there's all these people raising their eyebrows. I just thought I'd throw that in to see whether you're listening because it's not like a group project at all, you might say. This is the opposite of a group project. It's not like we all contribute equally to the outcome. Jesus does all the work and we're just along for the ride. And yet, of course, now all the university students, your eyes are twinkling, say, no, it is a perfect group project. That's exactly how they work. And it's true, isn't it? The key to success in a group project, it's all about who's in your group. Make sure that you get in the group with the high-achieving perfectionist. And what's true of group projects is true also in life. Those who want victory in life are those who would fall in with the Lord of the universe who is full of generous kindness. Jesus wins. And we share in his victory. 
You know, we might hear this idea of being reconciled. We've been reconciled to God and think, well, that's, that's obviously a, a, a two-way process. Like if you think of a friend of yours that you've had a fight with and then you reconcile, then you know that reconciliation requires that you each do some work. It takes two to tango. It takes two to reunite. Yeah? But that's not how the word was understood within the culture that Paul is writing about. It's important that we get this. When the Bible says that we've been reconciled, it's talking about God's action and God's action alone. God does everything necessary to restore our relationship with him. Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians 5 talks about God giving us the gift of reconciliation. Okay? A gift only comes from one Source Reconciliation comes from God. It is through Jesus' death and resurrection that God deals with the pain of our being enemies of God. It is through Jesus' death and resurrection that God forgives the guilt of our sin. It is through Jesus' death and resurrection that God absolves our guilt. God removes our shame. God does it all. Jesus wins and as a result God offers us this good and free gift of sharing in his victory and being part of the reconciliation that God is working in the whole universe and it is so important that we understand this as a gift so that we don't misunderstand the condition do you see in verse 23 there is a condition it says if condition this victory can be yours you can be reconciled to god if you do the right thing now you begin to wonder hang on this doesn't sound like a gift this sounds like a free gift that a telco offers you there's nothing free about this because it's just an exchange so what the heck is going on but the condition isn't about exchange at all once you notice what the condition is do you see? Verse 23, we get to share in Jesus' victory if we continue in faith. If we continue in faith, it means continue trusting, to keep on trusting that Jesus wins for you. Keep trusting that in the group project of life, Jesus has done all the work and you are along for the ride. Keep remembering that in this group project of life, anything that you try to add to that outcome is just going to muck things up again. Continue in your faith and resist the urge to contribute to your own salvation. Continue in your faith and resist the suggestion that you need to earn your way into this salvation or give something in exchange. Jesus wins and by his kind and generous gift we get to share in his victory. And that's the good news that this passage offers us. It is a big claim and it is a big offer. A comprehensive vision of the supremacy of Jesus and a promise that his death and resurrection could give you peace with God so that you might be reconciled, that we might be restored. So is it true 
And sometimes we think that's a question we don't, shouldn't, shouldn't ask in church because, of course, we're the people that believe this is all true. <laughs> I know that's what we're supposed to think, but, but is it actually? Like you hear this and is it a message that you hear and you think, yes, that is true. That will be true in my life. That this will be the true story that could make sense of your entire world. That this will be the truth that gives direction and purpose and energy to your whole life. Will that be true? Of course, it's difficult to test that, isn't it? There are claims here about creation and none of us were present to know what actually went on. (laughs) And there are promises here about the future. But if we wait to see how things pan out and whether they pan out as promised, it's going to be too late to jump on the bandwagon and get with the program. There's a lot here that we can't prove. But might I draw your attention to the one verifiable claim? There's one historical detail that we can investigate. That's in verse 18. He is the, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And it's the same message. If you're wondering at all about Jesus, then consider the question of what happened to his body after he was killed. The eyewitness accounts in the Bible tell us that he rose again from the dead. And all the promises that he makes are grounded in that reality of his resurrection from the dead. So if you are wondering at all about Jesus, then would you look into the story of his resurrection and come to know the risen Lord Jesus? But what will this mean for you? For, for many of you, I assume that here is, here is a passage that, that is sort of Christianity 101. Things that you've heard time and time again. Two very enthusiastic thumbs up for Jesus is supreme. You go home thinking, yeah, I knew the answer to that one. <laughs> but how will it transform us? I want to say that following Jesus is more like going for a swim in summer than the way most people eat Vegemite. Yeah? When it comes to eating Vegemite, are you a scraper? You know the sort of people that uh, they, they just scrape the smallest amount of Vegemite onto the toast? It just sort of vaguely colours the butter. You don't want to get too much. don't want to go overboard. Just have a little bit, and then that'll be fine. Now, if you want to eat Vegemite like that, then you can. I know that I'm in the minority of people that spread Vegemite on the way that a 10-year-old boy spreads Nutella. It's up to you how you spread Vegemite, but it's no way to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is more like going for a swim on a hot summer's day. And you know how you can hang around at the edge of the water and you see you dip your toe in Or you walk into the surf and you do that sort of don't splash me dance. And there's no joy in that. The full joy, the full refreshment is only going to come when you dive in and under. All the way in. All the way under. Go all in for Jesus. 
That's the only response that would make sense of this passage. If Jesus is supreme in all things, if Jesus' kind and generous gift is that we would share in that victory, then go all in for Jesus. So if you are thinking about joining Jesus the first time, can I say, would you say yes to him? Would you lower your guard? Lay down your weapons? Take your hands off the wheel? Hand over your authority. Stop trying to prove yourself. Give up your attempts at self-justification. Would you receive his good gift? Or would you receive that good gift with thankfulness? If that's you, then pray with me in a moment as I conclude. And make sure you come and speak to somebody before you go home tonight and speak to them about this new commitment of faith that you make Jesus wins and he offers you a share in his victory who else is making you a better offer Jesus has done everything that is needed so that you might be able to trust him with your whole life would you come to him say yes to him and if you are continuing to pursue Jesus this is not a new thing for you to walk into this week as a follower of his then would you keep on saying yes to him and resist the alternatives? Would you say yes to praise and pursue his glory rather than your respectability? Would you say yes to service and say yes to love over a life of self-serving comfort? Would you say yes to generosity and pursue trust in God and his provision than your attempts at security? Would you say yes to prayer and pursue dependence over self-medication? Would you say yes to his call on your life and pursue his greatness over your honour? Would you say yes to obedience and pursue his goodness over your own selfish desires? Jesus wins and we get to share in his victory so continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope that is held out for you in this very good news let me pray Lord Jesus We honour and worship you as supreme in all things. We acknowledge your victory and we come to thank you for your gift. Lord, for those who you are drawing to yourself for the first time tonight, Lord, we pray that you would please help them to see you in your fullness, that you would please help them to hand over their attempts to control and order and bring meaning and purpose to their lives. We pray that you would help them put put their trust in you and live for your glory. Lord, for those of us who embark on yet another week 
of being followers, being your followers. Lord, we ask that this would be a truth that you cause us to meditate and reflect on deeply so that we would be transformed in every way, that we would continue in our faith and that as we do that, we might be part of your purposes in the world and see your glory. Amen.